Josh was uh, saying um, he didn't know if he was going to get any more chances up here. It's not because he's long. It's because he keeps taking pot shots at me, right? Every chance he gets, there's a pot shot, Josh. I'm going to have to take you out for that. Uh, as we come to our text this morning, uh, what I want you to think about is I, think, I want you to think about a time when you were so eager and anxious to either see or participate in something that was happening, or so eager and anxious for that event to come and happen, that you got up on your tippy toes. Now you'll see that me do this sometimes when I preach. Sometimes I get so excited up here that you'll see me when I do, I start getting up on my tippy toes like this. When was the last time that you were in such a state? I think about like uh, in, in the movie, The Christmas Story, where Ralphie and his brother are both excited and terrified of Santa. They're, so, they're trying to get a peek of Santa around all the people in, in line. Um, I think about parades, where you're eager to see whatever is to come, and you, you can't quite see through the crowd, so you get up on your tippy toes. When was the last time that you leaned in, in such anticipation and excitement that you, you got up on your toes. Now, that would be the contrast the other way, right? We, we use these terms this way, like flat-footed, right? When you're flat-footed, in sports at least, um, my buddy Ben's here. Ben and I used to play basketball together. We both coached basketball. One of the things that we used to tell our players is that you get up on the balls of your feet to move on the basketball court, and once you slide back onto the flat part of your feet, you are already beaten. Flat-footed is like not anticipating. It's trouble. Like you are not going to be ready for what's to come. But when you're up on the balls of your feet, you're, you're ready for what's to come. I want to read this quote, and I think it gets at some of this idea, and then we'll get into our text. This quote comes from Frederick Buechner. He says, the house lights go off and the footlights come on. Even the chattiest stop chattering as they wait in darkness for the curtain to rise. In the orchestra pit, the violin bows are poised, and the conductor has raised the baton. In the silence of midwinter dusk, there is far off in the deeps of it somewhere a sound, a sound so faint for all you can tell, it may be the only sound of silence itself, and you hold your breath to listen. You, you walk in the steps to the front door. The empty windows at either side of it tell you nothing or almost nothing. For a second, you catch a whiff in the air of some fragrance that reminds you of a place you've never been and a time you have no words for. You are aware in that moment of the beating of your heart. The extraordinary thing that is about to happen is matched only by the extraordinary moment before it happens. And Beekner says, Advent is the name of that moment. That moment before the thing happens where you are eager, ready, anticipating what's about to happen. So much so that you get up on your toes. The, the thrill of that moment is the waiting in the anticipation of, about, of, of what's about to happen. It is when the lights go off, 
when everyone puts their phones away. It is the silence, the holding of the breath. It is that time when you come home where you're standing on the steps, when you've been gone so long and there's all those memories. It could be joy, it could be pain, it's probably a mix of both. There's smells and there's sounds. You feel your heart beat in your chest and the unknown is what's to come. People crowded in shops and streets, bumbled, bundled up, cocooned from anything that might happen to them in the world. And there, even there, you sense Advent, the time before the time. Our parable this morning starts with the word, then. It's future tense of comparison. Then the kingdom will be compared. I asked you to think about a time when you waited on tippy-toe with bated breath to think back. This is what's happening in the parable. Jesus is inviting, he's he's setting up this parable about people existing in the future kingdom talking about what happened in the past when they made the most important decision. Right? Like when you are waiting for something to happen, you don't know what's about to happen. That's what makes the waiting so thrilling. I get so bent on hoping on, in my sports teams and in certain games that I wish I could just wake up and be surprised by my team's success. And at the same time, I will somehow be cocooned in that moment from any failure or loss. So sometimes I don't watch because the pain of the unknown is just too great. I'll just wait, then turn on the score, be surprised, and then go back and watch it later. Now, what, is I, what do I miss out on in that? The thrill, the surprise, the failure, perhaps, of living into the unknown and experiencing the events. Now, life is like this. We, as we sit here, don't know when things will happen, how they will happen, where they will happen. Maybe we wish we did. We wish we had all, uh, we all had a time machine where we could go back to those times so we would know when we didn't know to relive the dynamic part of being alive. We think life is like this, like we are all planets hurtling around the sun, and the next time we get back around the sun, we'll be right back here again, and we'll be able to redo it or undo it. But the parables in Matthew 25, and the parables we're looking at at Advent, are telling us history isn't so much that like a cycle, as much as an arrow in a target. Like everything is hurtling like you shoot an arrow from a bow towards a target. And everything in history and the world is moving that direction towards that target. And sometimes things can't be undone the next time around. Sometimes it is too early or too late. And those missteps of too early or too too late result in fatal mistakes where the only thing you can do is live with the results. And so then, um, the then is emphasizing this. Then. When we're at the end and we look back, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, will be compared to ten virgins. These are ten young women, bridesmaids. They are all ten, notice, are 
part of the bridal party. All ten are waiting to escort the bridegroom in this, what would be a torchlight procession. It's at the end of the ceremony when this would happen, as the bridegroom brings his bride home. The lamps are torches made of oil-soaked rags, probably wrapped on a stick of some sort, which would burn for several uh, minutes or hours before they would need to be dipped back in the oil again. Without a further supply of oil, they would go out and assume, uh, they would go out. And the young women were supposed to meet the bridegroom, who would then fetch his bride from her home and lead the whole procession back to the father's house for a feast. Being a bridesmaid was a great honor. I've been a groomsman four or five times, and it is, right? It's an honor to be that sort of friend, to be called out, recognized, invited at that particular time. These 10 girls are no doubt excited, happy, giddy to be included in the wedding party. They were invited, invited to don the dress, invited to the title of bridesmaid. They were not snubbed. And then there were these things to do. Like whenever I was a bride, uh, groomsman, I ushered people sometimes. I moved a lot of things. I showed up and I was ready to help. My hands made ready to help things move along, to prepare uh, the way for things to be done. To be unprepared, well, that could be embarrassing. It would be a nightmare. When we got married, like one of the things we practiced in our, uh, 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 our what am I trying to say? Rehearsal, thank you. One of the things we practiced in rehearsal was like getting all those points right for the wedding ceremony. And one of the things that uh, Danette was instructed to do is before she left to go down the aisle, don't forget to grab your flowers from the maid of honor. What did she do? Forgot. The excitement of the moment, being carried away by that moment, she forgot the flowers. We've seen and heard stories about rings that need to show up being forgotten. As a minister, it's the nightmares that I have are nightmares of not being prepared. I have nightmares about being at a wedding and not having the vows. I have nightmares of showing up for a Sunday service and not ever, like, not having my sermon or not remembering it or not knowing what to say. Like, those are the things of nightmare. And you all have those things too. Why is it that some of you who have not been in college for 20 or 30 years go back to that moment and think, oh my gosh, I had a nightmare about not showing up for some exam, right? That, that idea of not being ready or prepared at the right time, we all get this. And what's at the root of that, not being ready for our text? Well, in verse 2, five were foolish, five were wise. All are in the bridal party. Same words here are used to describe the servants in the previous parable in Matthew 24. Five foolish, five wise. Those words for foolish and wise are used here. Verses 3 and 4, why are they foolish or wise? Well, five brought oil and five did not. You see, the foolish thought it unnecessary. Why? Well, it was a day wedding. We have plenty of oil, the thought was, 
to last into the night. And the immediacy of the moment was deceiving for them. It's too easy here to get into the lessons about, like, to misuse this parable and think it's about being prepared in the sense that we twist it in all sort of moralities, having extra for a rainy day. It's very easy for us to go here because that's what our culture values as this thing. But I want you to see first the hiddenness of the bridegroom. The bridegroom delays his coming. Why? We don't know. But what Jesus is doing in the parable is emphasizing the unexpected ways of God in the world. God often does seem hidden. And when tragedy strikes, we ask, what? Where were you, God? Why didn't you show up? Why didn't you act? This is one of the big arguments about God's non-existence. Why doesn't he show himself? And the question of this parable and the ones that follow is how do we, human beings, live and respond in a world where God seems hidden? Now, we're not talking hidden some deistic way where God is this watchmaker and he just gets the clock going and lets it go, but hidden in a surprising way. God comes into our world sometimes tippy-toe. And he calls us to stand on tippy-toes to see him. These parables at the end of of Matthew are inviting us into this kind of space. How do we live in the now with these two realities? One, now remember, he's talking to an audience who have, don't know all these realities. They only know really point one of the reality, Jesus' incarnation. How do the hearers of Matthew's parable, his disciples, live in the reality of what's the now, Jesus has come in human flesh, and the future, the death, the, re- the surprising death, the even more surprising resurrection, and the even more shocking surprising ascension of our Lord. Now, we live in the after of that. After a long period of silence, God broke into history in unforeseen, unprecedented ways. Those who are leaning in, they're called anticipators, had eyes to see and ears to hear, as Jesus would later describe them. I suppose when Jesus came, there were plenty of folks in Bethlehem who didn't notice a thing. Babies born every day. Poor people without a place every day, to stay every day. And the Savior of the world, world comes into such a place. So I, we need to understand, how do we live with the reality of that? Incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. The object, objective things that have happened in time and space and in history. And two, Jesus' second coming to resurrect and judge the living and the dead. Now, God is present now in this in-between, but his presence, just like his first coming, is mysterious. There is ways he seems absent. How do we live there? Now, Josh told that story about um, his son, about him playing I Spy with things like 
that are objective things, but things that aren't really there in the room. And he said, that's not how this works. Well, I want to kind of like get after Josh now. That's kind of actually how it does work. Because these two realities point this out for us. Like we live in this space of what objectively happened in time and space in Jesus. And yet we live in this space where we're hoping, waiting, longing for the second coming of Jesus. And we have all sorts of ideas about what that might look like, by the way. And so how do we, how do we know how to live? How do we stand on tippy toe? How do we not be flat-footed in, in this in-between time? Well, I think it is somewhat I'm driven by our biblical imagination of that first thing. Like we have these objective things that happened about how Jesus came, who Jesus came to, and what he did, and they're kind of like all upside down, by the way, like ways that we normally would think are like ways of being a loser in the world. And yet those are the ways that Jesus like undoes the powers and the schemes of the devil. They're not like, they're actually like this backwards radical way that God upends the way things are in the world. And and that has to only be attained by eyes that imaginatively are based on the realities of the past, looking into the future with some sense of imagination of what those realities and past mean for today and tomorrow. And that's why the virgins here, the bridesmaids, five of them are wise and five of them fail. How does one live when the bridegroom delays his coming and seems absent? That's the question for us. Advent pushes us back into that frame. And I know like it's an uncomfortable frame for us. It's an uncomfortable frame for me to be pushed into this place. I want to be like all sentimental about Jesus' first coming too. And think about a warm, nice you know, Christmas with presents and being tucked under and cocooned in my nice little blankie. But the reality is, is that we're forced to deal with now and future. And that doesn't feel so safe and cozy all the time. And so there's two ways to respond in life. There is either faith in an unseen God or unfaith in an unseen God. And Jesus is emphasizing this in this parable. There's this near and far expectation. Far expectation makes us more prone to forgetting the supernatural character of the world. The foolish didn't think extra oil was necessary. They thought they knew what the day was gonna unf- how the day was going to unfold for them. They- they'd been to weddings before. They-, they knew how long the party was supposed to last. We're good. We have enough. You see, the foolish maidens represent the wisdom of the world. What is that wisdom? Living by what you can see and feel and touch and taste and smell. And before we're too quick to judge them, that is how most of us navigate and play I spy in life. We base the way we exist in the now between the realities of Jesus' first coming and his second coming in the tangible and what we taste and feel. I feel like that's just not true for me. That's the wisdom of the world. The wise maidens represent the wisdom of faith, what Paul 
says is the wisdom of trusting in the foolishness of a God in Christ who is crucified. The wisdom of living by the all-governing reality of the party to which the bridegroom has invited all of creation. This party, either way, will last long into the night. The foolish took their lamps and they took no oil with them. They are those who assume their luck will always hold, so they make no effort to deal with the implausible. Now I'll make a confession about myself that I find myself often living like that. As I read through this text, I was cut to my heart about that way of being in the world. The wise took their flask of oil with their lamps. The five supposedly foolish girls know they have been invited to the daytime wedding. It won't possibly last all night. So they assess their needs and they are content. It is the least, it is at least mostly sensible. Why drag all these bottles of oil with us? The wise complicate their life with contingency, with what-ifs. They make preparations based on their unknowns. Their faith is a faith into such unknowns. And that faith causes them to respond with lugging around extra bottles of oil. I mean, it doesn't seem like that's wise. We all have what we need. The second are a bunch of worry warts, preoccupied with what might be a go wrong. But this world, if we know anything about this world, is a world of unknowns. Like, really, as you sit here, some of you have known this. Things do go wrong. Things have gone wrong. This is why there's this advent, this bated breath, this standing on tippy toes, because the world has such variables. In our parable, that something is the delay of the bridegroom. In this world, something always does go wrong. The bridegroom is late. He took his time in arriving. All the attendants in verse 5 slumber and sleep. Sleepiness isn't... uh, a form of lack of watchfulness, which is interesting because usually it is in Jesus' parables, but rather not making preparations shows a lack of faith. Sleep here could be sleep. It could may even be death, as some have interpreted it historically. Either way, the party has gone on throughout the day and into the night. The lamps are lit. The party wanes in the waiting. And at midnight, verse 6, there is a cry. Behold! The bridegroom has come in the middle of the night. Come out to meet him. Man, have you been woken up in the middle of the night by a scream? There was this time, man, when Danette woke me up in the middle of the night with a scream. Like, she was having a nightmare, and she screamed out. And usually we have the TV on in the background, but this particular night, there was no TV. It was just pitch black in her room, and she screamed out. And I woke up, and I grabbed my chest making sure I wasn't going to die right there in that moment. And then I got out of, the, out of the bed and in the dark couldn't see and almost fell on my face. Right, This is the world as it is. Unexpected things happen all the time. The girls are roused, verse 7-8. So they quickly trim their wicks. They all do that thing, all ten, 
And the wick trimming in the world is to prepare themselves to be ready. Why? Because the bridegroom is late for his own party. God has seemingly taken so long to do anything. The world has gone awry. And then in their wisdom, they try to save it in the moment. They trim their wicks. But some don't have oil. The oil's run out. Will you give us some? It doesn't seem quite Christian to be denied that, but the reality is you cannot depend on the faith of someone else late in the night. On that day, the question will be for you as an individual, all of us, are you ready? And the oil in their lamp, kids, the oil in your parents' lamp isn't going to be enough on that day. The oil in your family stories lamp won't be enough on that day. The shop closed at four or six. It's midnight. There is a time the parable is pressing on us when sooner or later it will be too late. There is an ultimatum in the parable. And most of us are uncomfortable in being put under ultimatums. But the point is sharp. Be aglow with the Spirit through faith or be searching out other lights on the last day and then it will be too late. We become what we do. If we trust, we become trusters and we enter into the sure possession of him in whom we trust. If we distrust, we become distrusters and close out the only relationship with reality ever offered to us. So the foolish girls went to buy, and the bridegroom comes in the middle of their buying, and it's too late. And the wise girls, with oil burning, went into the feast, and the door was shut. And the foolish girls come, Lord, Lord, open the door. And he says to them, I do not know you. The first lesson of the return of the bridegroom is you can't borrow, and the second is you can be too late. The foolish bridesmaids missed the entire procession back to the groom's house because they were out looking for oil. They missed the festive singing and dancing. They missed the critical element of the Jewish wedding in which the bride was brought into the groom's home under the wedding canopy. Having insulted the dignity of the host, they're not admitted to the feast. And the shut door is the answer to the foolish wisdom of the world. In the death of Jesus, in the foolish death of Jesus, he closes forever the world's way of wisdom. But the readies, literally as that reads in verse 10, Come in with him. What makes one ready? Not flat-footed, but on tippy-toes. Now, you know my son, my youngest son. His whole life, he's walked through the world on his toes. And I think it's like a, like a way 
a way that he is in the world. Like he just came out walking on his toes, and we, we've tried to like reprogram him. As bad, good parents do. And he just dances through the world on his toes. And there's something about that that's just so full of eagerness and anticipation about what might be. The bridesmaids with their oil and their lamps had faith in God and in his wisdom. And although God seemed hidden, they fell asleep with oil burning in their lamps, waiting with faith. Even though they were asleep, they were eager and ready on their tippy toes because they had oil in their lamps. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That's the call in this parable for us. In the period of grace, ask and you shall receive. In the period of judgment, ask and you ask too late. And that judgment is awesome, scary, and it's meant to bring us to sobriety. But it's also meant to be joyful. Don't miss this about the parable. The end of the parable is a party. This is what Capon says, when it's all said and done, when we have scared ourselves silly with the now or never urgency of faith and the once and always finality of judgment, we need to take a deep breath and let it out with a laugh. Because what we are waiting for and watching for is a party. And that party is not just down the street, making up its mind when to come and see us. It's already hiding in our basement, banging on our steam pipes, laughing its way up the cellar stairs. The unknown, known day and hour of its finally bursting into the kitchen and roistering its way through the whole house is not dreadful. It's all part of the divine call of grace. It's afoot, in other words. The kingdom is afoot, and the call of the parable is to ready yourself. How do you ready yourself? How do you stand on tippy toes? Faith. Faith is not assent just to some static truths. It's that and more. It's faith in what God is doing in the dynamic of history. Jesus saves by history. And at the end, he brings home the center of the target, Jesus, the reigning king. And faith is something that is done in response to that. And it's left undone. And when it's left undone, there's a price for it. And so you're invited this morning to ready yourselves by faith. How do you do that? Like Haddon does it. You go back to the tangible moment of God in history. What he did in coming as a baby, incarnating himself, becoming a human being, living a life, sinless, perfect, teaching, leading, guiding, walking, healing, freeing. That's what Jesus does. He proclaims liberty to the captives, the recovery of the sight to the blind, 
the year of the Lord's favor. How do you live incarnate in Albuquerque, New Mexico today? You walk through this life in that same way, mimicking after Jesus, proclaiming the year of God's favor now. And the kingdom is coming later. Don't be late. Be prepared with what? Faith. Walk through this life. Faith in those objective things. This Jesus came. He died. He was raised. And those things were unexpected, unbelievable. And then he was ascended and he reigned and he's reigning now. And he will return. And so how you live, you put that past together with the future. By what? Faith. We call you to come to this table each and every week. How are you to come to this table? How are you to eat just regular bread and wine and juice? With faith. Faith in what? Faith in the objective reality this meal is based on and faith in hope of what will, will come when Jesus feasts with us and faith that Jesus is himself present with us as we feast, even though we can't see him. And he's serving us. And he's telling you to eat. Why? So you can keep on eating, even in the last day. So you won't be left out that party looking for oil. Faith is the elixir that makes that oil alive and light up. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us, help us to see Jesus the object of our faith. We need the object of our faith, Jesus, to enliven us, to make us ready. And so we pray, God, that you would help us today in the dynamics of our own histories, in our own stories. Help us to be ready, tippy-toe, equipped with faith to see the unseen God. Give us grace, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.